Well, I know you may have come this morning expecting to hear me say, take your Bibles and turn to the book of Philippians, but I'm not going to do that. I'm going to ask you to turn to the book of Psalms, and specifically Psalm 42, a psalm that I've been meditating on much these last few weeks, and a, a beloved psalm that I've consulted on many occasions in my Christian life, and a psalm that uh, I've always wanted to preach but never have. And so I felt this was, there was no better time than the present to work our way through this truly uh, inspiring um, account of one man's struggle with spiritual depression. Psalm 42 As the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all day long, where is your God? These things I remember and I pour out my soul within me, for I used to go along with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with a voice of joy and thanksgiving, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him for the help of His presence. O my God, my soul is in despair within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of the Jordan and the peaks of Hermon from Mount Mizar. The deep calls to deep at the sound of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have rolled over me. The Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime and his song will be with me in the night, a prayer to the God of my life. I will say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? It's a shattering of my bones. My adversaries revile me while they say to me all day long, where is your God? Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him the help of my countenance and my God. Father, we pray that your spirit, even as he inspired the author of this psalm, would now illuminate us as the hearers, the recipients of this psalm. Lord, that we would understand what the psalmist was experiencing here, that we would feel what he was experiencing here, that we would also apply the, the truth that he applied to his own life to ours as well this morning. Thank you for your word and how it accomplishes its work in us who believe. And I pray that we would see that work done in each of our hearts in a very private, in a very personal way this morning, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, let me begin by saying thank you to the elders for encouraging me and to you for allowing me to take a few weeks off from preaching to catch my breath a bit and to focus on ministering to my family 
um, to also provide me some extra time to prepare for our next series on the book of Philippians. And just so you know, being relieved from the nonstop pressure of the pulpit, even for just a few Sundays, has been refreshing just in and of itself. You don't realize as a pastor until you step away that, that you feel like you're, you're living with a gun stuck to your head, that you've got to produce, that you've got to come up with something to say, that the people are expecting and waiting for you to explain and to apply God's word to their souls. And so having some time off has been refreshing. It afforded me the opportunity to spend some more time with Kelly and our kids and get caught up with some things around the house and and just to let my mind rest for a while, which, frankly, I don't know how to do too well. And so along with reading through Philippians a number of times in in preparation for preaching here, hopefully in a a week or two, um, I listened to some helpful sermons that really encouraged and convicted me. That's the other thing about preachers. We don't listen to enough preaching ourselves. We, we spend the majority of our time preaching, and we need to be preached too. And so it was very refreshing to listen to some, some sermons from some godly pastors and, and preachers. I also read a handful of books that I've been wanting to read for a while now. And in fact, I brought them up here with me uh, this morning. And I just wanted to read for you the titles of the books that I have read and in, and, and in the process of, of finishing. Uh, the first one is entitled Zeal Without Burnout. Seven Keys to a Lifelong Ministry of Sustainable Sacrifice. Second one is by John Piper. When the darkness will not lift, doing what we can while we wait for God and joy. The third is entitled The Mission of Sorrow, classic, a classic treatise on God's gracious purposes in our afflictions. Probably uh, my favorite, the one that's been most helpful so far, is a book by Al Martin uh, entitled, You Lift Me Up, Overcoming Ministry Challenges. It sounds much more positive on the surface, but if you go further into the book, you realize that this really was a series of lectures that he delivered at a pastor's conference under the title, Ministerial Backsliding Burnout, Its Symptoms causes and cures. A little more beyond the surface there. And then finally, a book that I've had on my shelf for more than 20 years, and I've never really felt the need to read it. That's probably why it has stayed there collecting dust all these years. But a classic by Martin Lloyd-Jones entitled Spiritual Depression, Its Causes and Its Cure. Are you picking up a theme here? It's pretty obvious that all of these books are addressing a a particular theme or issue, and and, uh, there's only so many books that you can read in a a lifetime, and so we need to be strategic in what we read. But all the books, of all the books that I could have read um, these last few weeks, my heart gravitated uh, to these books because I was looking for someone or something to address the present state of my soul. You may or may not have recognized it by interacting with me or listening to me pray or hearing me preach, but over the last year or so, I've recognized that it is not well with my soul. 
And I desperately need to be spiritually revived and renewed and refreshed. I was encouraged by a little email I received. It's called the Thriving Pastor Email Newsletter. And the title of this particular newsletter was, Is It Well With Your Soul? That was a shocking, uh, eye-opening question. Uh, We all know then love that song, It Is Well With My Soul. And we sing it with gusto, and even at times we'll be asked by someone we're going through difficult times, and we'll be able to muster up the faith and the hope to say, you know what, it is well with my soul. But what about the times when it is not well with your soul? Are there times in your life when it is not well with your soul? This is what the newsletter said. Quote, can you think of specific instances when your soul needed restoring, when you were discouraged or bowed down by the pressures and demands of family and ministry? Remember an event, or excuse me, remember an event doesn't have to be catastrophic to pose a serious threat to the health of the soul. More often than not, the real danger lies in the piling up of small irritations and burdens, little things that keep building one on top of the other until the accumulated weight produces despair. You continue to perform but you lack emotional vitality. You go through the motions, meeting the expectations of others, but inside there is a growing numbness, a weakening of the soul, a depletion of your inner self. When people reach this state of inner exhaustion, they often turn inward and become overly self-focused. Relationships are strained as emotions wear thin. Thought processes become clouded and the moral fabric of internal life begins to unravel. They maintain an outwardly religious persona while the authenticity and joy of their relationship with God slowly deteriorates. It's at this point that the soul becomes increasingly vulnerable to various temptations. If the need for spiritual refreshment and renewal goes unrecognized, things will will only get worse. Given time, this gradual erosion of the human soul can lead to severe consequences. It can cause people to stray further and further from God. It can make them actively pursue sinful desires. It's a slow and progressive process that has brought many a good minister down. Let's close in prayer. That is a very insightful summary of how not just I've been feeling, but how both Kelly and I have been feeling. The accumulated weight, as the author says, the accumulated weight of the pressures and demands of family and ministry has posed a serious threat to the health and the strength of our souls. We've been burdened. We've been heavy-hearted about many things. And in the spirit of this song, where the psalmist asked himself, why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? He asked himself the question. And he expected an answer. 
And so I've been asking myself this question, why are you so downcast, oh my soul? Why are you so disturbed within me? And that question demands an answer. And so I wrote down some reasons why my soul, our soul, has been so burdened and downcast and distressed. I'll just read you the list. We've been grieving over the trials and temptations facing our children. We've been working through the normal natural challenges of a midlife marriage, dealing with the frustrating signs of bodies that are getting older, battling with regrets of wasted years and missed opportunities, struggling to manage the increased financial pressures with kids in college, missing beloved co-laborers who God sovereignly chose to move on to labor in other parts of the vineyard, striving to respond in a godly way to malicious, slanderous attacks against me and our church and having your reputation called into question, experiencing for the first time a weariness in well-doing after ministering for so long in one place, realizing that we've been floundering, not flourishing, that we've been just enduring life rather than enjoying life, feeling sorrowful but not always rejoicing, like the Bible says we should, like Paul exemplified, and not the least of which is having to humbly acknowledge that the underlying problem in all of this is that we've allowed our own personal relationship with God to slowly decline and deteriorate, and so we're not trusting Him and depending on Him and hoping in Him and resting in Him the way we should. I'm sure if you made a list, some of these things may be included on your list. There may be other things that would be on your list that are not on our list. We all have our list at any, at any given point in our lives. But I thought I'd share our list this morning so that you know why you may have noticed that Kelly and I appear tired and subdued. And neither of us seem to be having fun in ministry right now. Those are my words. Those are the words of some dear friends and spiritual mentors who picked up on all of this in just a few hours in their home as we had a, the privilege last week of visiting some friends in Tennessee and, and uh, some dear long-time mentors of our souls. And so we thought, hey, you know what? This is a good opportunity. We're within driving distance of this couple, and we're going to go and just sit with them and bear our souls to them. And in hindsight, the man sent an email, and that's how he described our appearance. He said, can you appear tired and subdued and it was obvious that neither of you seemed to be having fun in ministry right now. And I thought, there's a very perceptive man. And they didn't perceive that just based on our conversation, but 
maybe more based on our countenance. They could see it on our face, in other words. That we were allowing all these things to discourage us and get us down and steal our joy and make us unhappy and cause us to despair and that we were depressed. Now, if we're all honest, and I'm hoping you're ready to be honest because I feel like I'm out on a limb sawing it off right now. So come join me in this. But let's be honest, we all get sad and depressed and discouraged at times, and all too often we allow the circumstances of our lives to take away our joy and get us down in the dumps. We all go through seasons of life where our our soul becomes weak and and weary, and, and, and we experience this back and forth battle raging within us between faith and doubt and hope and despair. And rather than praising God and and, and placing our confidence in God the way we're commanded to, we question Him and we complain to Him about the troubles and afflictions and the difficulties that He's ordained for our lives. And as a result of not doing what is right, our countenance falls. Just like Cain's. In Genesis chapter 4, when he was mad at God for not accepting his offering and he was conspiring to murder his brother Abel. The story of Cain is really a classic case study on the cause and the cure for depression. God went after Cain and said, Cain, why has your countenance fallen? And then he said this, if you do right, will not your countenance be lifted? That's a dose of medicine that our world needs to hear and needs to take because depression has become a major problem in our society. People spend millions of dollars on antidepressants in an attempt to to cure or at least cope with their depression. And the common belief in our day is that depression is caused by some kind of chemical imbalance in a person's brain or their body, and it can be remedied by medication. We've even come up with a term called clinical depression. It sounds very medical. Um... Sounds like it requires surgery almost. And while there may be physiological factors that contribute to a person feeling depressed and taking a doctor-prescribed pill may prove helpful at times in managing some of the symptoms, ultimately, depression can only be remedied by meditation on God and His Word. And that's why maybe a better term for depression is spiritual depression. Not clinical depression, but biblical depression. There is such a thing as biblical depression, by the way. And I say that because I don't want anyone to think here that I'm minimizing depression as if it wasn't 
real. No, it's very real and it can be very debilitating and very soul-racking. We know that some of the best known characters in the Bible experienced times of depression that sapped their physical and spiritual vitality. Saul, having been rejected by the Lord because of his disobedience, committed suicide. Elijah wanted to commit suicide, wanted to die after coming off this mountaintop experience of, 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 of defeating the 400 prophets of Baal and then hearing the threats of Jezebel, that you're going to pay for that. And it wigged him out. And he wanted to die. David in Psalm 32, dealing with the, the consequences of his own sin and talking about how God's hand was heavy upon him and his vitality was sapped as if he was in the fever heat of summer. Jeremiah lamenting the destruction of Jerusalem, talking about some bad circumstances, something that would really bum you out, is the holy city had been destroyed and God's people had been exiled to Babylon. And there he sat weeping over the rubble. Jonah, he just had a bad attitude. He just was messed up in his thinking. He got upset that God had mercy on his enemies and chose to not destroy them. And he was depressed. He wanted to die. And so we see these biblical characters struggling with bouts of depression. Also, I would add, if you're the least bit familiar with church history, you know that some of the great Christians of the past that we tend to idolize struggled at times with depression. Older writers and preachers refer to depression as the dark night of the soul. The dark night of the soul. The great hymn writer, William Cowper, who were indebted to for that great hymn that he wrote about the providence of God. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. That, that came out of his battle with depression. The great reformer, Martin Luther, was rebuked by his own wife one morning. She came to the table dressed in black mourning clothes as if she was heading off to a funeral. And he looked up and he said, who died? And she said, God died. And he said, you're a fool, woman. What are you talking about? And she had had enough of his melancholy attitude, apparently, and said, I'm going to make a point here. And he said, well, the way you've been acting, I thought God might have died. And he got the point. What a great helpmate Catherine was to her husband. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon talks often about his battle with gout a physical malady that led to depression. And even in our own day, Mr. Desiring God himself, John Piper, 
has honestly admitted the frequency and intensity of his bouts with depression. Now, some of us, due to our temperaments or circumstances, may be more prone to depression than others, even as some of us are more prone to pride and lust and greed and anxiety and lying. We all have, kind of have our, our own personal struggles. But if you are one who struggles with depression, you're in good company. And that in and of itself should encourage you, should comfort your soul. As for me, this is mostly a new experience. I've historically been a very positive, optimistic, upbeat person who usually takes things in stride and not much gets me down. But I've noticed that in recent months, my normally sanguine personality has become more melancholy. There's been less of a skip in my step and less of a smile on my face. And so I've had to ask myself the question, why am I so unhappy? Why am I so unhappy? That's essentially the question the psalmist asked himself in Psalm 42. And not just once, he didn't just ask himself once, he asked himself that question three times. Three times. You say, well, I only noticed two times. Well, verse 5, why are you in despair, O my soul? Why have you become disturbed within me? Verse 11, why are you in despair, O my soul, and why have you become disturbed within me? But then notice the next psalm, Psalm 43, verse 5, and why are you in despair, O my soul, and why are you disturbed within me? Again, he didn't just ask himself, this question once, he didn't just ask himself this question twice, he asked himself this question three times. Something just right off the bat we can observe there is sometimes it takes a while to work through depression. You can't just snap your fingers and everything's okay, you're back to normal. It may take more than one attempt at counseling your own soul, if you will, preaching to your own soul. It may have to be a daily conversation that you have, maybe an hourly conversation that you have with yourself. Now, I included the question in, verse four, in chapter 43, or Psalm 43, because originally Psalm 42 and Psalm 43 were probably one psalm. Many of the ancient Hebrew manuscripts have them together. Um, psalm 43, if you notice, has no title, like all the other psalms in this section do. And so uh, many have, have concluded that this was more of an epilogue or uh, maybe a continuation of, of Psalm 42. But I think the main reason these two psalms should be viewed together as one is, is, is because of this repeated refrain, which provides a clear and natural flow, just like the lyrics of most songs we sing. When you, we get used to songs, and there's always a, a, a few verses and a chorus. 
right? You sing a verse, and then there's the chorus, and you sing a verse, and you sing the chorus again, then you sing the verse, and then you sing the chorus again. I think that's what we see going on here in Psalm 42 and Psalm 43. We see the verse, three verses, three stanzas, if you will, followed by the same chorus. Verses one through four is the first verse with the chorus in verse five. Verses six through 10 is the second verse, followed by the same chorus in verse 11. And then the final verse, the third verse is verses one through four of chapter 43. And the chorus is verse five. And so we have to remember that the genre here of Scripture is musical. The, the, the book of Psalms was the, the hymn book for the nation of Israel. And this particular song was either written by the sons of Korah or written for the sons of Korah to perform. Notice it says for the choir director, a mascal of the sons of Korah. The sons of Korah, interesting group here. They're part of the Levite tribe that had been mercifully spared by God when the earth opened up and swallowed up their dad, Korah, along with the rest of the people who rebelled against Moses in the wilderness. And in spite of their father's sin, God graciously entrusted them with the sacred duty of leading the nation of Israel in worship. Chris, I was thinking this would be a good study for you. Figure out who these guys were, the sons of Korah. There's some rich theology here for worship in that, that they're really an example to all of us, these, 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 this group of, of men who were mercifully spared from God's judgment and they apparently dedicated the rest of their lives to serving the Lord and singing to the Lord as a result. That's a good example for all of us. We, we've all been rescued, spared from God's wrath. And should we not all say, then, then because of that, all I want to do is serve the Lord, all I want to do is sing His praise for the rest of my life. That's the sons of Korah. They were the singers, they were the musicians who were responsible for producing and performing the music used to praise God in the tabernacle and later in the temple. There's a total of 11 psalms that are attributed to or associated with this group. A, a string of eight of them are here in this section, Psalm 42 through 49, and then later Psalm 84 through 88 minus, verse, minus Psalm 86. Having said all that, while we can't know for sure who the author was of this psalm or the occasion that inspired this song, this could have been the personal experience of one of the sons of Korah. And if that was so, it, it seems that this godly worship leader was feeling the effects of living in exile far away from the place of worship in Jerusalem and was longing to be back in God's presence. Well, regardless of who it was, we know for sure that this person was lamenting about a very troubling situation in his life. He was, he was depressed. He, he was disturbed. He was bummed out big time. We know that the Psalms fall into several categories. We have Psalms of praise. There's penitential Psalms. 
There's imprecatory psalms. We like those. Praying judgment, God's judgment down on our enemies. There's messianic psalms that, that prophesy about the coming of Christ. And then there's what's called psalms of lament or complaint. Songs of lament or complaint. And, and I think these psalms, this last category of psalms, are really some of our favorites to turn to whenever we're facing a, a difficult time in our lives when we're depressed and we're in a debilitating situation. Why? Because the writers dare to be honest about what they're thinking and feeling. And there are times when you read through the Psalms and you think to yourself, well, I may have never said that, but I thought it, I felt it. And so here in Psalm 42, the psalmist was honestly confessing his struggle with depression. And he shared the reasons why he was so discouraged and distressed and admitted that his heart was fluctuating between faith and doubt and hope and despair and joy and sorrow and peace and distress. He was, he was, it was a maddening irony here. He was thirsting for God in a parched desert, while at the same time he was drowning in an ocean of trials. Go figure. How can I feel like I'm dying of a lack of thirst while at the same time I'm drowning? And I think that's just evidence of how our hearts can be entangled garden of emotions and feelings and thoughts. But he felt like his soul was drowning in a desert. How do you do that? How does that happen? And so it comes as no surprise that he questioned God 11 times and wondered why God was not answering his prayers or coming to his rescue. And even so, the psalmist shows us how in the ups and downs of life, not to be controlled by our feelings or let our joy be dictated by our circumstances. His bout of depression as we will see, was relieved when he took hold of himself and examined himself and called his soul to account and preached truth to his soul and reminded himself of who God is and what God has done and what God has also promised to do. And his spirits were lifted when he realized that while there were plenty of problems in his life, to cause him despair, there were far more promises in God's word to give him hope. And while there were many reasons to complain and protest, there were far more reasons to praise and thank God. And at the end of the day, his confident faith in God is what soothed and steadied his soul. I would suggest to you that this beloved psalm, one I'm sure that most of you are very familiar with, is a divinely prescribed 
antidepressant for the depressed and distressed soul. I'm sure you have heard of, are familiar with, a drug called Paxil. It's probably one of the leading antidepressant medications that's advertised on television and magazines, and many people have resorted to that to help them with their depression. Well, I want to introduce to you this morning and advertise to you a new antidepressant, not called Paxil, but Masco. You see that in your Bibles? We're still in the title here for the choir director, a Maskil of the sons of Korah. You say, what's a Maskil? Well, it simply means a psalm of instruction. So in other words, this psalm was intended to instruct our souls. Here is wise counsel for our soul, or better yet, a good example for us to follow. Intending what Piper calls the tangled garden of our own souls. Our souls are funny things. We, we all have different methods of dealing with a downtrodden soul, a downcast soul. What do you do when you get depressed or stressed out? Well, I think all of us, on some level, typically try to make ourselves feel better. We don't want to feel sad. We want to feel happy. We want to feel better. And so we do something. What I do may not be what you do. What you do may not be what I do. But we all do something to make ourselves, try to make ourselves feel better. So we eat something. Some of us do that. We drink something. We take something. We buy something. We watch something. We go to the pantry or the refrigerator or the medicine cabinet. We go to the mall. We go on the internet. We go on vacation. We do all these things. And instead, we should go to God's word and take a dose of this spirit-inspired Maxil. It's a new drug. You never knew it existed, did you? To relieve our bouts of depression, however brief or long or mild or intense that they may be. And I don't know about you, it's always encouraging for me to to listen to the experience of of a fellow pilgrim, a fellow saint, a fellow sufferer who's been greatly afflicted by God but by His grace has persevered through their trials. Some of us who have been a part of Lakeside for many years still remember the glow on the face of Ann Works. Remember her? Here's a woman that died of cancer before our very eyes. And yet never once 
did her countenance fall. She was an inspiration to all of us. Her confident faith and trust in Lord, what a great testimony. What a great legacy she left for all of us. And the psalmist has left a similar legacy as he invites us to really into his struggle, if you will. And if you were to put a title on this psalm and I just wanted to play with some words and a familiar theme when it is not well with our soul. But maybe a better title would be Trusting God Through Tough Times. Trusting God Through Tough Times. And rather than just following a a strict exegetical outline here that just kind of walks us verse by verse through these two psalms, I think we would be better served by following a, a more topical or thematic outline or maybe a devotional outline because this sermon, before I ever cracked open any commentaries, was devotional. It was in my own devotions. It was just in my own time with the Lord that I was reading this and meditating on this and trying to figure this out and what does this mean and how does it apply to my life? And, and then I got to get to the commentary to see if I had if I was right in what I concluded. And so I want to just follow a more, again, devotional outline here. And, and I want us to see the text here and how it exposes both the causes and the cure for depression. More of a topical approach, but I think a faithful approach nonetheless. The, the, the causes and the cure for depression. I just ripped it off from Martin Lloyd-Jones. Spiritual depression is caused and it's cured. Seemed to fit. And so what are the causes of depression and what is the cure? Maybe the more important question is what is the cure for depression? And so let's begin to look at some of these causes of depression. We have a few minutes here that we can wade our way into this and we'll have to pick it up next week. But... Let's look first of all at the causes of depression. And as we look at the three stanzas or verses that I pointed out to you in in, in Psalm, both Psalm 42 and 43, we're able to discern at least three reasons why the psalmist was depressed and disturbed. Now, Now, there are more reasons, more causes of depression than are here in this particular song, but I think these are three of the major causes, the most likely causes of depression. What we see here is that the psalmist was, number one, abandoned by God, or at least felt like he was abandoned by God. Number two, he was antagonized by enemies. And thirdly, he was afflicted by trials. He was abandoned by God, antagonized by enemies, and afflicted by trials. Notice, first of all, how he felt abandoned by God, verse 1 and 2, as the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? 
And so the psalmist likened himself to a panting deer as it wandered through a parched desert during a season of drought, desperately searching for some water to quench his thirst. Have you noticed that the Bible never likens us to camels? I never thought about that. Why not? Because camels are pretty much self-sufficient. You water them up, and a few hundred miles later, you do it again. But, but those guys, they can just kind of tromp through the desert for days without ever needing a drink of water. The, the son of Korah here was, or the author of this psalm was saying, hey, I, I'm no camel here. I'm a, I'm a deer, and a, uh, I'm going to die if I don't have a regular source of water. And it's the same for you. It's the same for for me. We will die spiritually due to a lack of the water of the living God. This is no dead God. This is no idol made of wood or stone. This is the living God, the true and living God. And our souls cannot and will not survive unless they're regularly replenished by spending time with this living God and his word and his prayer. David understood this, and in Psalm 63, he uses very similar language. Another uh, beloved psalm, Psalm 63, David writes when he was in the wilderness of Judea, which is, if you've ever been to Israel, it is a barren wasteland. It's like, dude, why would you be out here for any reason? Get me out of here as soon as possible, but he was driven there many times by the crazed Saul who was seeking his life. And so David says in Psalm 63, verse 1, O God, you are my God. I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. And so like David and the author of Psalm 42, we need to to crave God. I wonder if we crave cupcakes more than we crave God. I crave cupcakes. <laughs> Especially crave cupcakes. But do I have that same craving for God? We need to have this intense yearning for God's presence to, to the point that we can't get enough of Him. Have you ever been uh, working out or maybe out in the yard or doing something where you sweat it and you're just, you, man, you're just, you're getting thirstier and thirstier and, and you get inside and you are just like drinking everything in sight. And, and it's like you drink a glass of water and it's not good enough and you drink a, a bottle of Gatorade and it's not good enough and then, then you go out and whatever else, you just start, it's like you can't quench, so seem to quench that thirst. And that's the way it should be with our relationship with the Lord, we need to realize that God designed us in such a way that nothing or no one but Him can quench our thirsty souls. And by the way, God in His great wisdom, knowing the waywardness of the human heart that we would naturally and sinfully seek our joy, our happiness, our satisfaction in other things than Him, 
created us in such a way that we will never be able to be satisfied apart from him. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 12. The prophet says this, Be appalled, O heavens, at this, and shudder. Be very desolate, declares the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. And so whatever he's about to say is appalling. Like, I can't believe that this is even possible. Who would even consider doing such a thing? What are these two sins that God's people commit? They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. In other words, you know what? This fountain over here that just never stops flowing, full of clean, fresh water. You know what? I'm a little bored with that. I'm going to go over here and I'm going to make a little pot and it's going to have a hole in the bottom. And I'm going to run over here to this puddle and over here to this puddle and over to that puddle. I'm going to try to collect all this water and, and see if it's going to quench my thirst. And God looks from heaven and going, are you serious? Here I am, the fountain of living water and you're running around with your little crack pot dipping it in puddles, looking to satisfy your soul. And, and, and what, the, what the prophet is saying here is that, that God is deeply offended. He can't believe it's happening. When we seek to satisfy our soul's thirst with something or someone other than him. And again, he's made sure that that will not and cannot happen. And the psalmist understood this profound principle, and that's why he was thirsting for who? God. He was longing for intimate communion with God. He wanted to feel close to God like he had in the past. And yet he was experiencing a spiritual dryness, a weariness in his soul. He was feeling distant from God, and it actually got to the point that it brought him to tears. Notice verse 3, My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all day long, Where is your God? He was so depressed that he apparently had lost his appetite, and instead of eating, he just sat there weeping uncontrollably, and he couldn't turn the tears off. They just kept coming and, and coming, and he was, again, he was just describing the sadness of his soul as a result of being separated from God and isolated from the place of worship. Notice verse 4, these things I remember, and I pour out my soul within me, for I used to go along with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with a voice of joy and thanksgiving, a multitude-keeping festival. The memory of better days haunted him. He remembered the, how he used to lead the pilgrimage to the house of God. He was the guy out front leading the procession. He was the one with all the passion and the zeal for the Lord as they ascended up to the city of Jerusalem for the annual festivals. And now he was nowhere to be seen. He was far, far away from the place he desired to be. You might feel that way right now spiritually. 
that there was a day when you just were in love with Jesus. And now you feel like you've left your first love. There's hope in God. Notice verse 6 quickly. Oh my God, my soul is in despair within me. Therefore I remember you from the land of the Jordan and the peaks of Hermon from Mount Mizar. He, he was remembering these things. He says, I remember I poured out my soul. I remember how I used to go to the throne. But now, where, where, where is he doing this remembering? Where, where, where is he having this uh, uh, time of, 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 of contemplation? And reflection, he's reflecting apparently uh, in the northern part of Israel. In fact, the northernmost part of Israel. On the border of Syria, that's the land of Jordan. That's where the Hermon mountain range is. There's no point in Palestine that's further away from Jerusalem than Mount Hermon. Mount Mizar, he mentions here, means little hill. It's likely a peak in the, in the Mount Hermon range. And again, we don't know how the psalmist got there or why he was there. He may have traveled there on a, on a journey, a trip. Uh, he was maybe captured and exiled there. We're not sure. But to him, it felt that he was a million miles away from Mount Zion. Here I am in Mount Gerizim, and there's Mount Zion. That's where I want to be. And so he felt alienated from God. And not just alienated from God, he even felt abandoned by God. Notice verse 9. I will say to God, my rock, why have you what? I can't hear you. What? Forgotten me. I'm remembering you. But it seems like you've forgotten me. Notice he says, why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As a shattering of my bones, my adversaries revile me. It appeared to him that his prayers had gone unheard and unanswered and that for some reason God had rejected him. Notice verse 2 of chapter 43, Psalm 43. For you are the God of my strength. Why have you rejected me? He didn't just feel dejected, he felt rejected. And so the first cause of his depression was feeling like God had not just forgotten him, but had totally forsaken him. And sometimes that's the way we feel, isn't it? When God chooses not to intervene in our situation or change our circumstances, even though we fervently prayed and asked him to do this or do that, there is nothing worse than feeling abandoned by God. If that is your experience this morning... Let me encourage you to hope in God. For you shall again 
praise him for the help of his presence. Now let me just give you a sneak preview, even though we still have some more causes to cover here, but just a, a, a sneak preview of the cure for depression. It's really so simple, it's silly. It's almost silly to think about that when our soul is sad because of our feelings or our enemies or our trials or our maybe even memories, we have a very simple choice to make. We can either throw ourselves a pity party or we can give ourselves a pep talk. Your choice. And what you choose to do will make all the difference in how you respond to and deal with the problems and pressures of life. And I think all of us are, have gotten really good at throwing ourselves a pity party. That just comes natural. In fact, that's kind of fun, especially when you invite some other people to join in your pity party. Come on over, we're having a pity party for me. But it's not as easy. And it takes much more spiritual strength and maturity to say, hang on, time out, I ain't going there. It's time for a pep talk. And who's going to give it to me? None other than myself. And that's what we see the psalmist do. He gives himself a pep talk. Why are you in despair, oh my soul? Why have you become disturbed with me? What are you thinking? What are you doing? What's wrong with you? Hope in God. For I shall again praise him for the help of his presence. Father, we thank you for just a little bit we've had a chance to look at so far in this just so helpful, hope-filled psalm, and I pray that as we continue to meditate on it in our own devotions this week and maybe in our grow groups this afternoon or later, later on some other night or this week, that you would use this psalm to really soothe and steady our troubled souls. Lord, there's not a one of us in this room that couldn't get up here and read their list of all the reasons why they're burdened and heavy-hearted. No temptation has overtaken us but that which is common to man. And many others have endured similar trials. And we know that you will be faithful to us as you've been faithful to them. That after we've suffered for a little while, you, the God of all grace, who called us to your eternal glory in Christ, will yourself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish us. To you be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen.